0: i Owens, and you're listening to the Webby-nominated podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Book of the Month Club is this week's sponsor. They're offering listeners uh, their first book for only $5 with code Zibby, Z-I-B-B-Y. Again, that's code Zibby for your first book for $5 to Book of the Month Club, which by the way is amazing. I subscribe every month. I get to pick from five of their favorite books. Um, most of the time, one of them is is by an author I've had on my podcast and then it just arrives. I've given it as a gift. I adore it, and you will too. So think of it for gifts, and um, for sure, go on bookofthemonth.com and subscribe yourself. I'm here today with the legendary Susan Orlean, who is the staff writer at The New Yorker Magazine and the author of eight books, including Rin Tin Tin, Saturday Night, and The Orchid Thief, which was made into the Academy Award-winning film Adaptation. Her latest book, The Library Book, was nominated for the Andrew Carnegie Nonfiction Prize and the Los Angeles Times Book Prize. She currently splits her time between upstate New York and Los Angeles. Welcome, Susan. Thanks for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I'm thrilled to be with you, especially on a Saturday. This is like... Huge,
1: you know, very nice thing you're doing, so thank you. (laughs) Oh, it's great. It's actually a great way to get yourself up and out on a Saturday, right? (laughs) So you've written
0: a million amazing things. Let's talk about the library book first. So what inspired you to write the library book? And tell listeners who might not know what it's about.
1: The library book is a nonfiction book that actually has several narrative threads. On one level, it was a book in which I wanted to explore what the daily life of a library was all about. And I was focusing on the Los Angeles Public Library, the main branch downtown. And I I had that in mind when I discovered quite unexpectedly that the LA Central Library was the site of the largest library fire in American history. This took place in 1986, It was an arson fire that destroyed 400,000 books. It damaged 700,000 books, and it closed the library for seven years. So what had begun as this more general curiosity about what is the daily life of a library like became a story about the near death and rebirth of a library and an investigation into who did it and why? And at the bottom of that as well, to add one more thread, was the thing that probably got me interested to begin with, which was I have an incredibly emotional response to libraries. I feel like it isn't entirely rational or logical. It's some feeling that's much bigger and deeper and more touching than just saying, oh, well, it's a building with books in it. It's There's something about libraries that feel really emotional, and I don't think I'm alone in that feeling. So the book also was an attempt to explore that. Why do we feel so attached and connected to libraries? And why does the idea of one burning down feel so deeply distressing.
0: I love how you mention at the beginning of the book that many libraries in the past were based after the designs of religious institutions and churches and cathedrals, that there's almost something holy about the design even of a library.
1: And they, they do have this feeling of being a sort of sacred space. I think we all feel... That there's something in the air in a library that feels special. And that's really interesting. You know, I think we all feel wonderful walking into bookstores, walking into an art museum. There is this quality of being out of normal life that you feel in a library that is quite wonderful. I feel like it's more museum-like.
0: It's more... Like going into the Impressionist wing of the the Met and like looking at the, I mean, you interact obviously much more in a library with the work, but it's some sort of
1: reverence that you have to
0: bring to it when you go into a library, I think.
1: Well, I also think it's more like a museum in the sense that it's not a place of commerce. Mm -hmm. I mean, I love bookstores. This isn't meant to be a competition between libraries and bookstores, but Bookstores are places of commerce, and that's wonderful, and they're delightful, great places. Going into this sort of preserve of human knowledge that is available to everyone has a very special, sacred kind of quality that makes, I think it's elevating. You feel like there's some great good being done in this place the way you do walking into a museum where there's amazing work that's available to anybody to enjoy. I mean, there's something wonderful about that.
0: And you wrote in the library book about how your mother used to take you to libraries as a young child and how you have continued that tradition Onwards. And then you, it was excerpted in the New Yorker when you said how you actually became a little evangelical about book ownership, perhaps as a response to the libraries of your youth. Can you talk a little about that?
1: Oh, this is funny. It was something I hadn't really thought about until I was writing the book, which was my parents were products of the Depression and had a very practical attitude towards book ownership, which was you read a book to read it. You don't read a book to then have it on a shelf. And if you could take a book out of the library and read it, why not do that as opposed to owning the book? And they were certainly, thank goodness, able to purchase books. It wasn't a matter of the specific economics of it. But it was something that I think had grown out of their childhood of feeling like, well, that's That's silly. I mean, that's what libraries are for. You go take books out. It drove me crazy as a kid, partly because I think with kids, when you want something, you want it immediately. You don't want to be on the list of waiting for the people ahead of you to finish reading the book. You want it instantly. But also, I fell so deeply in love with books, I just wanted them around me. When I started college, I began buying books, both the books that I was buying for school, but then also just I started buying more and more books. And then I thought, I just want a house filled with books. Like a lot of things you do when you're a young adult, it was probably in part a reaction to my parents feeling like, well, you don't need to own all these books. And I loved the story that it told about what I had read and what I cared about. So that aspect of it really did matter to me, whereas I don't think my parents really thought that they needed to show their friends what their interests and tastes were. It's very funny because I also really care. I bought tons and tons of, I mean, I'm so old that you bought music as records (laughs) back then. And as did I. I mean, no, no old, old speaking here. And It mattered to me when I made a new friend or was going out with a guy for the first time to see his record collection and his books to figure out, do we have much in common? And so when we all transitioned to using Walkman and ways where your music collection was no longer something sitting out on your shelf, it was like a whole huge chunk of a person's Kind of character that you've no longer got to see, which was really interesting and in initially very disconcerting to me. But I became a crazed book buyer and I loved the physicality of a book so much and just having them around me. It, it really was something that I hadn't had a lot of as a kid. And so I think I doubled down <laughs> to just you know, and books were cheaper. I don't remember how much a hardcover was then, but as a college student, it was not a big reach to be buying books. They were affordable. And used books and all the rest. Right. There's always. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I mean, a lot of used books and I mean, certainly records were really cheap. And so I bought records practically every day. I was buying them, books and records. I feel like one negative that's been said
0: about eBooks is how you don't know anything about the person reading them. Like if you go on vacation on the beach, it used to be everybody would hold up a book and you would say, oh gosh, I read that. That was so good. You could like start talking, but now if everybody's right. on their device, you you know, it's a, it's a glimpse you don't get to get into somebody else.
1: Yeah. It's funny because I've been traveling a lot talking about the library book. And one of my favorite things when I get on an airplane is just everybody's reading and I love seeing what they're reading The fact is, 90% of them are reading Dan Brown or, um, you know, these crime and suspense novels. So, I mean, I would say that's overwhelmingly the case. But it's still fun to see what people are reading. And if they're reading on their phone or on a Kindle, you, you don't get that same chance of sort of glancing and seeing what they're reading. I feel like people are reading far less on planes. So
0: I as we were talking about, we both travel a lot to, I mean, we go out to LA a lot and I feel like most of the time people are watching movies. I mean, I'm always, you know, I bring book after book just in case I end up with a book that's like not enough to hold my interest for the whole flight. Right. I don't know. I, sometimes I walk the aisles and I'm like, I don't know how many people are actually reading. This is such a good time to read. Like it's stuck perfect. Here. <laughs> it's
1: quiet. Nobody's going to bother you. I think that people are deaf, and I see a lot of people playing solitaire on mm-hmm. their phone and doing just time wasters. But I, I do still see a lot of people reading, and I'm always so happy. I just feel like even if they're reading a book that I don't particularly find interesting, I think how nice to see that people are reading It just makes me feel good about the world. Maybe there's some way to partner
0: with the airlines and hand out books. You know, have like 20 books on a flight and you just like keep it in one of the overhead compartments and then it's like a little library and everybody on the plane could just.
1: Actually, it's a great idea. I mean, airlines used to have magazines. Right, yes. And I mean, it was a huge loss when they no longer had a variety of magazines. I mean, I always read. Magazines when I flew. Now they have the airline magazine, and that's it. Yeah, that's not, I mean, Sky Mall, I feel like, is a little more entertaining. Yeah, I know. And, and, now, and now I really miss it because yeah. they don't have Sky Mall anymore. That was my favorite reading yeah, material.
0: I mean, Especially with like little kids, even I would like, we could like look at what would you want? Like, yeah, you can <laughs> anyway. pick anything yeah, exactly. in the of, Yeah. <laughs> I would do that with my son too. Yeah. Anyway. Well, okay. I'll, I'll talk to JetBlue when this is over, but right. <laughs> we'll see what happens. There's one quote you wrote that was so beautiful about libraries that I just have to read it now. It wasn't that time stopped in the library. It was as if it were captured here, collected here and in all libraries and not only my time, my life, but all human time as well. In the library, time is dammed up, not just stopped, but saved. The library is a gathering pool of narratives and of the people who come to find them. It is where we can glimpse immortality. In the library, we can live forever. That is so beautiful. Thank
1: you. Tell me a little
0: more about writing that line, that passage.
1: When I was drawn to doing this book, I was trying to understand what that magic was about a library. And it really began with this sort of notion that it was a communal memory, that it was the place where everything that a culture knew and dreamed about and fantasized about was collected. But at the same time, it's a gathering place of people, each of whom have come there for their own reason. And it began feeling like this layering of stories that— you know in the in the course of a day in the library you have somebody coming in doing genealogy research and somebody doing work on their MBA and somebody you know teaching their child to read and everybody is coming in with their own story in a place filled with story that sort of wonderful nesting doll quality began seeming richer and richer to me the more I thought about it. And the idea that the library's remarkable ability that no human can possibly achieve is the eternal memory, that a library is filled with these stories that are permanent. I mean, for all intents and purposes, they can remain there forever, whereas human memory is just limited to our lifetime. And it became part of the book in a way I hadn't anticipated, which was, you know, I associated going to the library so much with my mom because my mom always took me. And she loved libraries, loved librarians. I began working on the book, and she was delighted that I was doing a book about libraries. And not long after I began working on the book, she was diagnosed with dementia and her memory began eroding the idea that a library could last forever and hold these memories forever versus me witnessing in, in real time the disintegration of a person's memory it became really emotional for me and and made the book feel like my effort to put down on the page the memories that I shared with my mom. Oh, that's beautiful. Did she read it? Did you? No, she no. passed oh, away so before sorry. I finished the book. And that was really, that was tough. It was tough because the book felt so much a part of my relationship with her. And... Yeah, I would have loved for her to read it. I'm glad she knew that I was working on it. That meant a lot
0: to me. Maybe this is what you needed to do to
1: help yourself through that time. It certainly comforted me. It did. And, and feeling like there was this reaching back to those memories that I shared with her at a time when she was sort of receding, it, it really was comforting. That's so nice.
0: And yet you also have this whole sort of, not crime fiction, but like investigative aspect of the book. It's not just an ode to libraries past and a mother-daughter story, but you delve deep into everything that happened and was it arson and the fire code and the building and could this have been avoided and which firemen went up which staircase and all the different lawsuits back and forth, which I could not believe happened with, I'm forgetting his name. I have it here. Uh, Harry, Harry Peak. Yes. <laughs> Harry Peak, And that he kept changing his facts around. So I almost finished this book being like, well, I don't know. Did Harry <laughs> accept this fire? Did he not? Like, I, I don't even know. I don't know what to make of this.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, it was really, you know, it was very much a crime story because, you know, you have this gigantic catastrophic fire that was determined to be an arson. And so the first question is, my God, who, who would do that? Would do this? And, you know, arson's funny. You've got a huge percentage of arson is done for financial gain. I mean, you insure your business, you set it on fire, you get your insurance money. That I'm, I'm not yes. recommending this, yes. but that is <laughs> a very common scenario that somebody stands to gain financially. Or it's a, a rival setting someone's business or home on fire. I mean, that's a very also a common scenario burning a library, nobody has anything to gain by it. So you remove this giant motivation, like, so nobody's gonna gain anything financially. Who would do this? We've got people who have mental illness that causes them to light things on fire. That's one possibility, but then there's this free-floating question of, all right, in this case, who would have done this and why? Harry Peake was a young, unemployed, aspiring actor who, by all accounts, was a very charming, likable guy. No one I spoke to spoke ill of him. I mean, they say, you know, he drove me crazy. He was always late on his rent, but he was so, just he could charm anybody. Everybody liked him. So he was not the classic image of sort of spooky loner. He was a very well-liked guy. He loved attention. He was very braggy and tried to put himself at the center of drama all the time. But there was nothing that indicated that he was somebody who had an attraction to fire or had any grudge against the library, nothing. The problem was he began telling his friends that he had started the fire so he, that he is a problem. Yes, <laughs> I will say I learned a lot about what not to do in <laughs> terms of committing crime in the sto- in the course of working on this book, which was pretty funny. But he started bragging to people, saying that he had started it. His story of, was constantly fluid; it was never quite the same story to each friend that he told. I mean, first it was that he was there. Then he was there and he started it. And, you know, there were many iterations of the story. There was a reward for information about the fire because of course there was a huge investigation in LA to try to determine who had done this. Although I love how you put in the book that
0: like in New York there was only just this tiny little mention of it in like the back of a newspaper. I know. <laughs> that was I loved that part. Anyway, sorry,
1: go on. Yeah, well it was really I mean it was like, no big deal. <laughs> yeah. Just talked on page yeah. like A22. <laughs> but he also had done a few things to change his appearance. He had shaved his mustache, he had cut his hair, he had enough that one of his roommates decided there was something fishy. And coupled with the fact that he had claimed that he started the fire, she contacted the fire department and said, I think it's him. He produced, over the next several months, seven different alibis for where he had been that day. This is another thing I learned about crime. It's not very convincing to have seven different alibis. It, if you had one alibi, that would be convincing. But he kept changing his story elaborately. You know, not just a little bit different, but totally different. So this can be your next book. It's like
0: right. Susan Orlean's Guide to Committing right. a Crime. How to. <laughs> how to. F- insurance fraud, part right. one. Right,
1: Arson, part it, two. Yeah, okay. no, I've got it all. Yeah, I've figured it all out. Yeah. So the the pursuit of the truth about the fire and the legal pursuit of Harry Peak was so convoluted, fascinating, ultimately unresolved. But following the the legal case was fascinating to me and there were a lot of things that came into play, including the fact that even though he was arrested, The district attorney had had some significant failures in prosecution in L.A. right before this case came up. And so there was a lot of fear in the D.A.'s office about pursuing a case that wasn't a guaranteed win. There were other facts which were there wasn't ever any hard evidence connecting him to the fire. So, It became fascinating, and the whole—I mean, I found it really interesting to learn not only about arson, which is a really complex, confusing crime much of the time, but also the history of the burning of libraries, which has, sadly, a very extensive— history and in the book you said you actually experimented
0: with burning books just to see what that would look like and that it was as hard for you to do that as like throwing away a plant for example
1: <laughs> yeah I mean I thought I've never seen a book burn it for the sake of writing about it let me just burn a book so I can have a visual mm-hmm. kind of image but also I was curious about the taboo because it felt like, I can't burn a book. And I thought, that's silly. I can burn a book and I can go buy a replacement. I mean, this is this is just some paper. It's there's nothing special. I could barely do it. And that to me was again uh it supported this notion that we feel something about books and libraries that isn't purely logical. It's something emotional, spiritual, magical, that makes a book feel almost as if it has a life of its own. And burning a book was one of the more uncomfortable things I've ever done, to be honest.
0: I feel like there's two parts of losing books. One is losing them this way, but one is, another way, is in the books that were never written that should have been written from the loss of people. Right. So it's like an a library can be emptied out by tragedy in the flesh, like with the burning books and as you saw, but also the sadness of who didn't write the books that they should have, like with things like the Holocaust and the AIDS crisis. And I remember interviewing Will Schwalbe. He was talking about this that in his book about how the sadness of the books, the stories were never told. Yeah. I feel like
1: that's like another element to this. Oh, it's huge. And that's where... This idea that books are these documents we produce that sort of say we lived, we existed, we knew things, we dreamed of things, we imagined things. And we're sharing that now in perpetuity. Each time you remove that possibility of those stories, it's a it's a real loss.
0: So does that motivate you? What motivates you to write? I mean, you've been writing all, for a long time all these amazing books, books that have been turned into movies that are now staples, like we were talking about earlier, like Blue Crush and Adaptation, and now The Library, can I say that? The Library yes. is going to be a, a TV show. Like, why do you do it? Why did you start doing it? What is it about it that like gets you excited to do it day in and day
1: out? Well, I think from the time I was really very young, I thought there was some absolute sorcery in writing and reading. I think the idea that I could read a book and feel like I was somewhere else and living in another place or inhabiting another universe was so extraordinary and so transporting that I thought, well, I want to do that. I want to be the sorcerer who makes that happen. And being by nature somebody who's just really curious and imagining, kind of digging into something that wouldn't normally be part of my life, that was irresistible. But then there's the other side of that, which is wanting to tug on someone's sleeve and say, I just did the most amazing thing. Let me tell you about this. Or, oh, my God, I just... Spent, you know, six years in the L.A. Public Library. Let me tell you the amazing stories that unfold in the, in the library. I mean, so it's both the acquiring the knowledge, which I find really intoxicating and wonderful. And then there's this sort of performative part of it of saying to people, "Ooh, ooh, let me tell you, I, I just saw something incredibly cool and interesting that I want to tell you about.
0: Awesome. How do you do your writing?
1: Like, where do you do it? Do you actually work in a library? Do you work at home? Was this book any different? This book was different. I mean, normally I do all my research first. So the first half of whatever I'm doing is out in the field, researching, interviewing people. And then for many years, when I lived in New York, I had an office at The New Yorker and I would work in the office. But Then I left New York and started working at home. And then when my son was born, suddenly working at home became (laughs) a little more challenging. And it was a constant kind of race to figure out where could I work, where I could really shut off and focus. And as my son has gotten older, that's become less of an issue, but it's still working at home has its challenges. Now, I split my time between L.A. and upstate New York. And in both places, I have a little freestanding building, that a little office that's even just being 10 yards from my house makes it feel separate. In the case of, of working on the library book, I had been working at home, and I just was stuck. I was distracted. I My husband works at home, too, which meant— an additional distraction. (laughs) So for a while, I rented a a co-working space. I thought, you know, I've just got to get out of the house. I can't be working at home. And then one day I was working at the library because I wasn't, for whatever reason, I didn't have a chance to go to this co-working space. And I thought, why don't I just work at the library? It's free. It's very peaceful. It's, you know, a perfectly good place to work. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm writing a book about libraries. And it only occurred to me now that this is a great place to work, which really cracked me up. <laughs> and there are specific reasons that I wasn't. I, When you're working on a nonfiction book, you often have lots and lots of material. And obviously, you can't leave that in the library. So it means every day having to pack up and take your stuff home and back again. So there are certain ways that it's not ideal, but I was toward the end of the book and I didn't have as much kind of (laughs) files and stuff to cart around with me. I'm now back to working in my little, my little studio. And the only, the only thing is to keep my husband and son out. And To make it clear to them that it is not like a clubhouse for them to come hang out with me because, I mean, I like the fact that it's just my space and that I can lock the door and nobody comes in. The other day I was trying to
0: get something done. I went to a coffee shop and then I realized I couldn't plug in my computer there and I didn't have enough power and it was like a whole thing. Anyway, I had told everybody I wasn't going to be home. So I snuck in and like hid out in my son's room and closed the door. My son who's away at boarding school. So like nobody would think that I was in there. And I
1: I was like, I just don't want anyone to bother me for a little bit. I just have to get this done. And so, and well, I also, in the course of finishing this book and my previous book, did residencies at Yaddo and McDowell. And it was something that I I never quite understood why these were so, why people sought them out. Because I, I just didn't quite understand why they were so necessary. I don't think I would have gotten the book done if I hadn't had those residencies where, and I didn't ever go for a long time, but even going for two weeks or three weeks, where that's all I did was work and just be able to get focused and make a lot of headway on the book. It was, I mean, I'm so grateful for having had the chance to do that. When I got home, I was I was already then in the groove and it was a lot easier for me. But when my son was little, I Built a little writing studio. We were living in the Hudson Valley at the time, full time. And I would say goodbye to him and then sneak to the studio because he couldn't see it from the house. And I thought, well, as long as he doesn't know where I am, he thinks I've left, you know, gone somewhere far away. And then one day I hear a little tap <laughs> on the window and I look up and he's there and he looked, he looked so excited, like, mommy, I found you. And I said, hi, oh my God. And that was the end of that. (laughs) It's But it's challenging. You know, it's hard enough to get yourself to focus. And then when you've got family and all of the sort of regular day-to-day stuff that comes into your life to be attended to, it can be really hard to buckle down and work on a book. You mentioned you were back in, in your studio. Can you mention what you're working on now? Well, I'm working on this television adaptation of the library book. I'm going to go back to doing some magazine pieces for The New Yorker. And I'm toying with working on a book that would be more of a sort of writer's memoir, a kind of memoir of my experiences oh, do it. writing. Please do it. I would
0: love to read you. I mean, I'm sure I'm not the only one, but I would read that in a heartbeat. I think people would
1: love that. Well, thank you. That's so nice to hear. Put it up the list. Move it up. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's, you know, I at this point, I've been writing for, you know, it doesn't feel like a long time to me, but it's been a long time and I've had some really interesting experiences. And I think it would be fun to write about the the writer's life that I've led. It's been quite interesting, and I hope it would be interesting to other people. I'm sure it would be. So save it for your book, but do you
0: have any gems, little pieces of advice for aspiring authors
1: now? Well, what I've said to people that, you know, these are evergreens, but I think the number one thing is to read as much as you possibly can read. And I was talking to a young woman the other day who said, you know, I'm trying to get, develop a voice as a writer. And I said, you know, I think the best thing, and this sounds absolutely shocking, but the best thing is to imitate the writers you really like And eventually you won't be imitating them. You will begin finding your own voice. But it's almost like apprenticeship. You take the work you really admire and try to see how it works and try to use that same mechanism, and eventually it will become yours and you'll do it your own way. Mm -hmm. But I do think the most important thing is read as much as you can and write as much as you can. So I have one question, which you don't have to answer, but I feel like you have green
0: in your hair. I do. And at first I thought, oh, she just missed a piece of gray or something, but no,
1: it's actually green. So yes. what, tell me the story. Why do you have this? You well, know, it, it's it's so funny and it's kind of faded right now. It's normally a little more vivid. I, gosh, I think I did this three or four years ago where I just was feeling like doing something different with my hair. And I'm too much of a chicken to cut it really short or do something like that. But I had this crazy idea that I wanted to put in a streak of color. And I have a very adorable hairdresser who said, oh, I think it would look great. We'll just bleach out a chunk and do a color. And I was incredibly nervous. (laughs) It was so funny. And she kept saying to me, don't worry, you can always dye it back to your own color. Like, it's not permanent if you don't want it to be. And what I found really funny is I did, I was just really nervous and she did it. And I came home and I hadn't told my husband or son that I was doing it and neither of them noticed for for ages. <laughs> and then one day my husband said to me, he said, you've got like green in your hair. And I said, yeah, I've had it for, you know, three weeks. And he said, "Well, you can take it out, right?" And I said, "Well, no, it's actually my hair." I think he thought I had clipped in, you know, a little lock of hair. But he kind of looked at me and said, "Well, it's cute." cute." (laughs) I thought, "Okay, that's fair enough. That's that's the best that I can hope for." It's kind of it's fun to do. I mean, it requires a little maintenance, but. I Love enjoy it.
0: it. It's awesome. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, thanks for coming on, moms. So I don't have time to read books, and thanks for all your time.
1: Well, thank you. This was such a pleasure. Oh, good. Thanks. Thanks.
0: This episode has been sponsored by Book of the Month Club. Bookofthemonth.com. Enter code Zibby to get your first book for $5. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You can always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com.